This is Chapter 124 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, a book about an extraordinary woman ahead of her time. We get tips on living a less stressful life, and we rethink what it takes to succeed in business from self-made billionaire David McCourt. In The Dragon Lady, we're introduced to Lady Virginia Courtauld, a woman who was very much ahead of her time. She embraced being a divorcee when it was frowned upon by proper British society. She fought for racial equality in what was then Rhodesia in the 1950s. But what she perhaps is best known for is her snake tattoo that earned her the nickname that inspired the book's title. I spoke with author Louisa Traeger about her novel, which is now in its third reprint. What inspired you to write The Dragon Lady? Well, I stumbled across the story by accident when a friend asked if I'd heard about Zimbabwe's secret money. It was 2016 and the painting was allegedly hidden in the vaults of the National Gallery of Zimbabwe to keep it safe from Robert Mugabe, the president. I have family in Southern Africa And on a trip to Harare, I managed to find a few of the secret paintings. There was no Monet, but I did see works by Renoir and Dürer, among others, donated to the gallery by Virginia and Stephen Courtauld. My curiosity was piqued, and I began to research the Courtaulds. The more I found out, the more intrigued I became, and I decided that this was a story I had to tell. So what in particular about Virginia really drew you to her? Well, it was the tattoo of a snake on her leg, which apparently ran from her ankle all the way up her thigh. And only her husband knew where it ended. And also she was a boundary breaker, which I think the snake has told you already. She didn't care what she said to anyone or what she did. She wouldn't have any sort of conventions at all. She really was this woman before her time, whether we're talking about that snake tattoo or her fight for racial equality in what was then Rhodesia. How much of what she and her husband did is based on truth? How much is the fiction that you created in this book? Well, it's all based on truth. The Courtaulds fight for racial equality and all the work they did to help Zimbabwe is absolutely true, Um, as is the fact it brought them into conflict with their white, rather racist neighbors. Um, I wasn't able to find out exactly the nature of that conflict or what the bad thing that happened to the Courtaulds was. And so I invented that, but it's all based on truth. And something else you weren't really able to figure out, although you kind of make your own assumption, is what exactly led her to have that infamous snake tattoo, right? Yes. Every time someone asked her why she'd had the tattoo done, she told a different story. It was a teenage dare a coded message for a lover. It was a membership badge to a secret society. I have my own theory about why she had her tattoo done, but I would love people to read the book and form their own opinion. And I love, too, that she must have inspired you so much because you now have gone out and gotten (laughs) yourself a snake tattoo on your ankle. 
That's right. I did it a few days ago here in New York City um, to commemorate the book and also a new chapter in my personal life. I'm really pleased with it. And I know I've I've joked with you a little bit before, but, you know, I have to ask, is this going to be something you're going to do for every new book you have come out? (laughs) I am still pondering that one, Lisa. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's uh, in, in the time that you know, between our conversations that we've had, I've I've finished the book and I've really took pleasure in how you wrote the character of Mugabe just because, you know, it's happening to we're having this conversation a couple of days before he's due to be buried. And it's really interesting how measured you were in describing him. Yes. Well, the courtals helped Mugabe Um, in the very early days of his career when it seemed like he was still a good guy. And he came to their house for secret meetings, um, secret because he was being watched by the police. So Stephen was impressed by him and, you know, helped him. And in fact, the constitution of Mugabe's party, ZANU-PF, was drafted at Stephen's house I think, you know, Mugabe did have good qualities in the beginning, and then he became corrupted by power and wealth, as as so many people are. And I thought it would be more powerful not to spell out, you know, he became a bad guy, but to let the reader, you know, see history unfold and, and to know that he wasn't good. But sometimes when one's writing, what one doesn't say is more powerful than what what one does. And it's interesting, too, that he wanted the the court all's estate as his own country residence right after he took power? Yes, he did. So he got to know it during the course of these secret meetings. And It's the most beautiful replica French chateau, very unusual in Zimbabwe. So I can see why he wanted it. Um, He wasn't able to get it, and I I don't know why. And the property is now owned by the National Trust of Zimbabwe, and it's run as a hotel. You know, we've focused a lot on Africa in this conversation, but the book also spans other geographical areas as well as decades from the from the 20s and 30s up through the 50s. What other sort of research did you did to get all the details right? I went to Elton Palace, which was the Courtauld's extraordinary home in England, um, which is also it's open to the public and. You know, if you're if you're going on a trip to England, I do recommend you visit it. It's a fascinating property. And um, so I went there. I met a cousin of Stephen called George Courtauld, who was very generous. He shared his recollections of Stephen and Virginia for, with me. Um, one unforgettable snapshot memory: as a boy, he used to beg Virginia to do her party trick he'd say make your snake dance aunt Ginny make your snake dance and she would flex the muscles on her leg and the creature would the tattoo would wiggle on her leg Um, but he also gave me access to Virginia's and Stephen's letters which well it was such a privilege to have access to their intimate lives and crucially to their voices 
Now, you've said you found Virginia more fascinating than her contemporary Wallace Simpson, who was also a divorcee shunned by society. Why do you feel that way? Well, Ginny was more exotic. She was the daughter of a an Italian father and a Transylvanian mother. And she claimed to be a descendant of Vlad the Impaler, um, who some people believe was the inspiration for Bram Stoker's Dracula. So she was incredibly exotic, but she was also very, very brave. She fought for racial equality in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, at a time when it really was dangerous to do that. And, you know, too, in in talking about this, someone who is a little bit different in how they're viewed by society, it's kind of amazing that no matter how much time has passed, some things still remain the same or come back again. Because I think about Meghan Markle being a divorcee, being biracial, doing things that perhaps proper British society look frown upon. Yes. It felt very resonant, you know, writing the book today because of those parallels. I think strong women have always been frowned on. And that, you know, that's something I find very interesting, that dynamic. Um, And of course, we're living in a time when white supremacy is rearing its ugly head again, as is racial discord. Makes you wonder, will we ever learn from history? History has this horrible pattern of repeating itself. And I don't know, I sort of felt when I was writing that in some ways things have changed, but in others, life and the world really hasn't changed at all. So, Louisa, tell me what you're working on next. So my next book continues my theme of strong women who live by their own rules. I'm writing about Nellie Bly, who was America's first female investigative journalist. She faked insanity convincingly enough to get locked up in the asylum on Blackwell's Island off the coast of New York. And when she got out, she exposed the terrible conditions, which led to fame for her and more money being given for the treatment of the mentally ill. Nellie Bly went on to do many other amazing things with her life, but my novel focuses on her stay in the asylum. What is it about these strong women that draws you to them and makes you want to write about them? You know, I'm not sure. I I discovered Nellie Bly as accidentally as I discovered Virginia Courtauld, but a pattern is definitely emerging. And I guess there's some inner drive compelling me towards these women. So go figure. Well, I think these these brave women, their courageous deeds, their actions and what they've done for society as a whole definitely deserve to be told. And hopefully we'll have you back for the next book since it's such a New York City centric and also I have a little spot, soft spot for journalists. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I would love that. Thank you very much for having me chat to you today. Yeah. And so everyone should go out, pick up the Dragon Lady, Louisa Traeger. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Lisa. If you're one of those people who feels like there aren't enough hours in the day to finish everything you need to get done, then this next book is for you. Listful Living, A List-Making Journey to a Less-Stressed You, is the brainchild of Paula Rizzo, who wholeheartedly believes that creating lists from daily tasks to future goals can lead to a less frazzled lifestyle. First off, let's start with what it means to live listfully. 
listful living is a journey that you're going to take through list making. And it's designed to really help you live a less stressed life, but still be productive and still get stuff done. And you had quite the awakening to get yourself to this point in your life, right? It was very dramatic, yes. So a year after my first book, Listful Thinking, published, my appendix burst. And that typically doesn't happen to people because you usually go to the hospital first. But I didn't listen to any of the signs and signals that my body was giving me. I thought, oh, this pain will go away. I don't have time for this. Who can sit in an ER for, you know, two hours? Well, I ended up in the hospital for eight days, out of work for six weeks, and recovering for, you know, over a year, really. And so everything had to come off my to-do list, every single thing. And you know, the world still spun. It was, everything was still okay. I think our egos are so attached to the to-do list to, I have to do these things. They have to be done by me. But that's not actually true. So after that happened, I was really intentional about what I allowed back onto the list and it sort of reframed everything for me. So is it really that we're just trying to do too much in our daily lives? I think a lot of people are just not good at understanding how long things actually take and how long things take them personally to do. So it is important to time yourself and know, you know, how long tasks will take so that you know how much can I actually fit into a day. I mean, this comes from my my life as a TV producer where I know exactly what 30 seconds feels like. I know exactly what a minute feels like. I know, okay, well, I don't have that call for another two minutes. I can definitely make a cup of tea and sit down and be ready to go. But most people don't know that. So you have to you have to train yourself a little bit. I kind of did that just before this interview. So I, I understand that probably because I come from the same media producer standpoint as you. Exactly. Exactly. It's a good skill to have. So the book is chock full of advice. I love also one of the things you say is don't say yes to everything. Yeah, I think we all are ingrained to be people pleasers, right? We want people to like us. We want to be helpful. We, you know, we want to be the person who shows up. But if you say yes to everything, which is what I was doing when I launched my first book, because I thought that's what you were supposed to do. I thought if I don't say yes to this, it's going to go away. You know, these media interviews or these events or these book signings and all this stuff, it's going to go away and it'll never come back. I have to grab it now. Now I know that's just not the case. It just makes you burnt out. But when you say yes to someone else, you have to make sure that you're not saying no to yourself and knowing your priorities and what you're working on right now and how that aligns or doesn't align with the thing you were asked to do is really important. So I dive into how do you figure out your priorities in the book. And there's also a lot in here about self-care. Why is that so important? It is such a buzzword these days, right? Everybody's talking about mindfulness and meditation and self-help and all of that, you know, self-care. And uh, I've been a health journalist for a really long time, and people get it wrong. They think that self-care has to be really expensive or really time-consuming. And I'm here to say, you know, the pressure is off. It, is, it does not have to be either of those things. It doesn't have to be a week-long vacation, and it doesn't have to be a $300 massage, okay? It could really be just moments in your day that you choose to do things you really love, like have a cup of tea or read a chapter in a book that you really love or call a friend or maybe go on a little virtual vacation, right? Pick a, a place that you've been wanting to go. Go on Google Maps. Set a timer for 15 minutes. 
and just zoom around and check it out and take yourself somewhere else. You just need little little spots in your day where you can have joy and really be able to relax a little bit. And there are a lot of studies out there that kind of show that taking those breaks throughout the day actually make you more productive, right? It's true. And also with music, too. There was a study that was done about um, if you take a break and listen to 15 minutes of the music of your choice, it does make you much more productive. And I have done a lot of, as a health uh, producer, I did a lot of shoots with doctors. Um, and so I was in ERs and ORs a lot, shooting, and they would always have music on in the OR. And I, I, I was always like, what is the deal with this? But when I did a little bit more research, I found that that actually does make you more productive. How do you envision readers will use this book, which by the way, you encourage them to write all over? Yes, which, you know, people are usually, I, I mean, I know, I'm, I'm like, I don't want to write in a book. That's not what you do. I was taught to not write in books. But this is a workbook. You're meant to write in it. Please write in it. And uh, it's a journal. So there's a lot of exercises that are going to take you through some list making activities, some journaling where you're going to write some longer form stuff. Um, but it's, it's only for you. This is your book. You do with it what you want. And I take you through the journey. The beginning part is really about you know, self-exploration, like what is happening in your life right now? Where are you with your productivity and your, and your, um, and your stress levels? And the second part is all about where do you want to go? What would the perfect day look like? And then the last part is really practical. How do we get you there? Because I can't, you know, just have you dreaming big and then not actually getting anything, anything done. And you do intend for people to, to go through a page by page and not skip around, right? Yes, I would really like if you if you do it in order, but I understand if sometimes you get stuck or you're, you're thinking, oh, I don't want to do this part. If that happens, go to the middle part because that's the dreamy part. That's like the, you know, uh, bucket list kind of stuff. So that's sort of fun. So if you get stuck, go back to the middle part and then go back to where you were. Or if you get stuck, take one of those 15 minute breaks. Right? Yes. Exactly. Right. Go on a virtual vacation. <laughs> so I think it's pretty obvious that people who already like to make lists will will get a lot out of your book. But what about those people who don't naturally gravitate towards this kind of thinking? What would you say to convince them that this book would do them some good? Well, everybody wants a little less stress in their life. And sometimes people look at list making as sort of like cheating because they're like, oh, I should remember all the things that I have to do. And I don't want you to have that kind of pressure on your brain. OK, you shouldn't have to remember to remember anything. Let the list do that job, offload it and then use your brain power for something more, you know, just better. Something that you are the only person that you can do that task. That's what you need your brain power for, not for remembering these things. So sometimes when I frame it that way, people are like, oh, OK, I get it. And uh, the other thing is that, you know, burnout syndrome is a real thing now. People, the you know, World Health Organization is, has named it an actual syndrome. People go to the doctor all the time. I think it's 70 between, between 70 and 90 percent of all doctor-related visits have to do with stress. So if a list can help you be less stressed out, why not try it? What do you tell people is the one thing they can do in their lives right now that will lead to a less stressed life? Really making a list at, I like to do it the night before the next day, because I like to close the book on the day and look through what is it that I have to do tomorrow that I have the time and the resources to do. So really, I mean, I look at it like a TV producer. I mean, you're in radio, you know how this works. It's like a rundown to be able to say, okay, what can I do at what time of the day to be able to get more done? And you have to know yourself a little bit, but if it's simply, what are you going to do tomorrow? Well, I think you need to make this list today 
so that when you come into your, your office or desk or wherever you work, the next day you can hit the ground running because you see what your intention is for the day. You might get derailed a little bit, but at least you know what you meant to do. Well, I think I'm going to close the book on our interview there and also cross off Paula Rizzo interview off my to-do list that I have for today that's right in front <laughs> of me. It- doesn't it feel so good? I love that. Cross I love being right able off. to Done. cross it right off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm totally a list person. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, Lisa. So the new book, Listful Living, A List-Making Journey to a Less Stressed You, Paula Rizzo. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. Thank you. Happy list-making. In his book, Total Rethink, self-made billionaire David McCourt is challenging entrepreneurs to think like revolutionaries if they want to succeed in this instantly connected era of smartphones and social media. He recently spoke to CEO Radio's Ray Hoffman about how any person in any career can benefit from thinking outside of the box. The point I try to make throughout the whole book is that the world used to operate with incremental changes. And you'd have one change in front of the other, in front of the other. And Ray, in our whole business careers, that's what the, that's what the whole, how the whole business world operated. In fact, and you ran your life that way as well. Up through about Jack Welsh's tenure at GE. Mm-hmm. Around that time, it all fell apart. And now you need a revolutionary change, a dramatic change you need to blow up the model if you want to be successful. And that's because of, partly because of globalization, partly because of the internet, partly because of social media, partly because of the way we absorb information. And that, my book came out in the middle of June. And I would say from the time the book was published till now, I even feel stronger about it. Because Internet 3.0 was right around the corner, Ray. And that's going to change everything. 100 times faster than it's moving right now. And there's going to be a revolution in, in business, hopefully only in business, but if only uh, um, rich people have access to clean water uh, and, clean, and clean air and job opportunities and education, you won't be able to hire enough personal security to stay safe. So we better democratize the technology that's allowed us to get to where we are today. Yeah, you mentioned the figures in the book. Two and a half billion people around the world probably today have more opportunity and more clean water than at any time in history. Unfortunately, five billion people have none of that. Exactly right. And what we have to do is, in addition to get, getting them clean water, we need to get them internet access so they can have a chance to take advantage of globalization. They can have a chance to take advantage of the opportunities that you and I have here in Manhattan that you don't have if you're living in a rural wherever. And that could be rural America, it could be rural Ireland, it could be rural Africa, it could be rural Asia. But if you don't have internet access today forward, you're not going to be able to get educated, you're not going to have access to the best health care, you're not going to have access to the best uh, job opportunities and so forth. And you describe this as a bottom-up technological revolution. Well, because, Ray, in, in the next 15 years, 60% of the world's population will live in cities. So that's, we're going to be adding about seven New York cities a year to the world, either people moving to a city or new cities being grown. And of those, uh, uh, 60% of them will be under 18. About 100% of them will understand how to use technology. 
and about 100% of them will be pissed off if we don't solve these problems. Does the shape of the revolution in business look different to you now than it did when you were revolutionizing cable television in Boston 35 and 40 years ago? Yeah, because what we did, and keep in mind, so I built the first competitive phone company in America, and that, and, and that was by connecting two buildings, Bank of Boston, building one and building two, then there was three buildings, then there was four, then there was six. Eventually, we had other customers, and then we merged uh, my company, Corporate Communications Network, into MFS and created MFS McCourt, and eventually we sold MFS for $14 billion. But we were only roughly $300 million in revenue then. But we were, it was a revolution. We were like a dog that could speak. We were very, very unique. But what made us unique is we were competing with a 100-year-old monopoly. So that was then. Now take from then to now, telecom and technology has grown by a factor of about a million. So what you could buy for a million dollars when I got out of Georgetown, when I got out of college, in size, speed, capacity, storage, brain power, measure it any way you want. In my business, what would cost a million dollars in the late 70s would cost a dollar today. And there's no other business rate that even comes close to that. The closest I can come to, when I think of every other industry, think of the food industry, think of uh, uh, agriculture, think of transportation, think of aviation, think of anything you want. The closest I can come to is some industries dollar for dollar have grown four or five times. We've grown a million times, and it's going to be another million from now through the implementation of Internet 3.0. And a million times a million is a big number. That's a big number. And that's the type of change you're going to be looking at now. And that change has to be driven by entrepreneurial thinking because entrepreneurial thinking is the only thinking that's ever proved successful, right? Well, and it's also things are moving too fast for a big company. Big companies stay, uh, they stay big companies because they have very, very good defense. They play defense very, very well. They play defense from a regulatory standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, um, from a political standpoint. They play defense very, very well. They've never been great at offense. And this is an offensive game as we move from Internet 2.0 to Internet 3.0. And as you point out in the book, we're going to have to change the way we teach entrepreneurism, broaden it out, right? Well, we have to, we have to teach it to people other than business people. So business people, all the entrepreneurship programs, and I speak at half a dozen colleges a year, maybe more. I'm the entrepreneur in residence at Georgetown and out at the Annenberg School at USC. But all these entrepreneurship programs are almost all exclusively in the business school. Business people, you know, they're like a, like a mouse. They'll find a crumb. They'll do, they'll do all right. We need to teach entrepreneurial thinking to diplomats and doctors and healthcare workers, uh, 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 policemen and women, teachers, people who maybe don't have a lot of utility for money or maybe don't, they don't either have a need for a lot of money or don't care that much about money. But they still are trying to solve problems. There are some people who go to work every day and they're not just trying to make the most money. They're actually trying to move the ball forward in life. That's where we need to teach entrepreneurship, in my view. I like how about 40 pages in in this book, Total Rethink, it becomes an autobiography for a while. You talk about growing up in a working class family in Massachusetts and a remarkable mother with seven children, two of whom became billionaires. And there's also the completely improbable story of how you, who wanted to be a cop but couldn't get into the police academy, 
ended up working a short time later for Tip O'Neill, the Speaker of the House. How did this all happen? When I couldn't get into the police academy, I was complaining at the dinner table, and my father was a, you know, we had a blue-collar upbringing, so you can imagine with seven kids and two grandparents and two parents, there's 11 of us in the kitchen, there wasn't a lot of room for, for complaining. So my father said, look, you're talking to the wrong guy. Go talk to your congressman. So I said, who's my congressman? He said, Tip O'Neill. I said, where's his office? He said, well, he's a small office in Watertown Square. So off to Watertown Square, because we grew up in Watertown, I went, went to the office, and it was, it was a small little regional office. One man by the name of John Carver was there. And I went in, and I, 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 I bitched about not being, not being accepted. And um, while I was talking to him, he, wrote a, he was writing a letter. And I thought he was just sort of doing something else at the same time. And he folded the letter up. And he handed it to me, and he said, uh, go to college. You can always be a cop later. Uh, and when you get to Georgetown, go to Tip O'Neill's office, and please deliver this letter to a woman named Dolores Snow. Went to Tip O'Neill's office, took the bus there, found Dolores Snow, gave her the letter. She opened it, and she said, when do you want to start? And this guy, John Carver, had written a letter and said, hire this kid. He's a good kid, uh, so hire him. So that's how I got hired. Can you tell me what you learned from him 40 years ago that's still valid today? I learned so much from that man. One thing I learned from him uh, that doesn't seem anybody else, it seems like everybody else has forgotten this, which is getting half of what you want is better than getting none. He'd come, he'd come I, I would, because I was the low man in the totem pole, I'd be in there on Saturday, and he'd come in and I'd say, Mr. Speaker, how are we doing? And he'd say, well, Dave, we got half of what I wanted, but that's better than nothing. And that was the way politics used to be. You know, you, you, you ask for the whole pie, someone else has a different view, they get half, you get half, everybody's happy. The country's made up of, of people of all different ideals and all different beliefs, and you sometimes have to compromise. Now, it's an all or nothing battle. And, you know, the left says that all big business is bad, the right says that government is bad, we need less government. Well, government's not all bad, and business is obviously not all bad. Business is what made America, that's what makes America work. Uh, and government's not all bad, that's what keeps us safe. So that I learned from him. The other thing I learned from him, it takes no longer to do something the right way than it does to do it the wrong way. And I learned that because one day I had the job of, of wrapping his, his Christmas gifts that were going out to these VIPs. And Dolores Snow came in and she saw the, the, the way I had wrapped them. And she looked at him and she goes, do you think this is an appropriate way for a gift from the Speaker of the House to arrive on someone's desk? I said, well, now that you put it that way, it doesn't look so great. <laughs> and she said, it would not take any longer to wrap it the right way. So Propriety. Yeah. So those are all books that at face value don't seem connected, and yet maybe you're taking something away about being a less stressed but successful person who bucks convention. Or at least I hope you did. Until next time, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.